Seven years ago, a friend of mine came to town to run the Philadelphia Marathon. And on that same morning, there was a shorter race for those of us like myself who were not running the Philadelphia Marathon in 8K. And the way that the race has started is that the marathoners went out first when the sun was barely up. And then about a half hour, 45 minutes later, those of us who were running the 8K, the slightly less than five mile race, started out. And there was something that we saw, those of us who started the second race. It was this. We saw piles and piles and piles of clothes. <laughs> now, my first thought was, I really hope someone's going to collect all those clothes. That's not garbage. Most of those things have probably been worn once. Runners are notorious at throwing stuff out. The second thought I had was this. This is a great life lesson. The race started when it was cold, and the body temperatures of the runners were cold as well. They started bundled up, and then, as the sun rose, as their body temperatures rose, they shed what they no longer needed. To shed what we no longer need, what was once necessary to the purposes of our lives, but that we can learn to let go when new opportunities or new possibilities arise, this is a very important spiritual life lesson to learn. It's why being a beginner matters. That quote we've been using all throughout this message series this fall, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. That is about moment-to-moment -moment learning what is necessary for us to know so that we can live our lives most fully. Now, when we have a beginner's mind, when we can maintain that sense of being in touch with our lives that we call the quality of being a beginner, another question arises. If there are so many possibilities, which possibility is right for me right here, right now, in this moment? Not all the other moments, but this moment. The wonderful story that Greg told this morning about the kiss on the head. And by the way, I want someone to come up and surprise me and give me a kiss on the head after the service. <laughs> I've showered today. I'm clean. It's all good. It, it reminds me of a, a great quote by the mystical poet Rumi. He said, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. A thousand ways. And in fact, there are probably many more than just a thousand ways to express devotion to have the kissing contact, conscious contact with our lives, meaningful, felt contact. But you know, from moment to moment, the thousand ways don't matter. What matters is our one way in this moment of contacting our lives. This is why being a beginner matters so much, so we know the means, the specific means we can choose to be really, truly in touch. And know that moment to moment, those possibilities and those means of making contact with ourselves, with our lives, with God, with each other, they will change. To start to engage this sense of how we work with the possibilities of our lives, it means that I'm going to talk about a word right now that very often I, I don't use. Actually, I, I would dare to say in the, in the five and a half years I've been doing this, I may have never used this word. So get ready for it. It's brand new. The word is purity. It's not a word that progressive spiritual types use very often. Because too often, purity 
as a concept, as a labeling device, has been used to divide us, has been used to divide us within ourselves and from each other. We hear pure or impure foods. We hear pure or impure books. We hear even worse about, quote-unquote, pure and impure people. Moralistically, purity is used to say some people are clean and some people are unclean. The misuse of purity is one of the most damaging forms of spiritual and religious malpractice, and I use that word intentionally. But there's another way to understand unity that isn't about dividing ourselves between ourselves. It is about uniting our attention, our awareness, our aspiration not about what is clean versus unclean, but about what is necessary versus what is unnecessary. I've had a very intimate, very recent experience with this. I just came off of, as some of you here today did as well too, the silent retreat. The first word that popped into my mind, and it wasn't just because I was going to preach about it this morning, when I broke my silence yesterday, was a feeling of purity a feeling of being in touch and letting some other stuff go that wasn't necessary. I mean, traditional spiritual practices like silence, like retreats, like fasting is a beautiful way for us to get in touch with what really matters and to let go of the stuff that doesn't seem quite as necessary to us any longer. But you know what? We might get confused at times. We might forget what is really necessary for us to live when we live in that place called simply too much. Too much stuff, too much work, too much worry, too much anxiety, too much to do. When we get into that place of too much, this is how I feel. You ever see that? Those of you who have, well, if you don't have Macs, you've probably never seen this. 100% CPU usage. You got a PC and you run a scan because your machine has slowed down and it's not doing what you want to do in the way that you want to do it and it just seems to be like swimming through mud, 100% of your computing power is being used. In that space, within the computer, it is an odd mixture of both frozen and frenetic because it is spinning its wheels, it is moving and moving and moving and yet going nowhere. Sometimes it's the same thing with us. We can be frozen and frenetic simultaneously when we live in that space of too much, when we have forgotten what is necessary in this moment, and we cannot distinguish it from what is unnecessary in this moment. This is why one of the core values, very important core value, Wellsprings, well, they're all important, but this one particularly right here and right now, is spiritual practice. It gives us the means to regularly check in with our lives so that we can start to discern which possibility is the right one right now. Not all possibilities, but which possibility. As the recovery movement says, what's the next right thing? Not all right things, but right here and right now, what can we do? How do we discern and figure out the necessary programs? or even the counterproductive programs that our internal heart systems may be running. Just like at the runners at the start of the service that I mentioned, they shed their outer layers that were no longer necessary to the task. The stakes get even higher when we get in touch from time to time, as we all do, and maybe some of you from the looks on your face right now, you might be really in touch with this right now, wondering how to work with it. 
when our systems are running the counterproductive programs, the afflictive emotion programs, the shame programs, and the guilt programs, and the anger you can't let go of programs, and the pain so deep you consider maybe that it will go on forever programs, those kinds of programs. And in those kinds of moments, I try to remember what Rabbi Jesus said, who said that really very often the, the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is fear. He particularly brought this up with a great teaching. He said, which of us, which of us through worry could ever add an hour, a minute, any time to our lives? Worry is that frozen frenetic program that we run. I know I have run too much in my life. And in that place, we cannot be free. Love cannot express itself. Which of us, by worrying, by letting grief fester, by being angry all the time, which of us added a single hour or minute to our lives? I would say it's actually subtracting minutes and hours from our lives, <laughs> not just the health perspective, but also the sense that when we are stuck in those states, both frozen and frenetic, we are not truly living. That's why I have, some, have to find some means, all of us, a means that works for you, a means that works for us, to get in touch with that loving, non-judgmental self-purification. Because the thing in the 100% CPU state, there is no sacred emptiness. There is no place to grow. We are all used up and exhausted simultaneously. Heard a great example of someone getting in touch with what was really going on in their lives this past week. It was after the mindfulness small group that I lead, and one of the members of the group came up to me afterward, and they gave me permission to share their story. And the last half hour, we had been doing a, a yoga practice. And yoga and mindfulness is not about having the right form. It's not about having the right posture. It is merely using the movements of the body to get in touch with what is going on from moment to moment. Now, this person said after that half-hour yoga practice that we ended with that something arose that, that kind of surprised them. They found real sadness. And the sadness was a response to the fact that going through all these movements, this person got in touch with how incredibly tense <laughs> their body was. Like, you know, through this, I mean, you really get in touch with how the shoulder is. Not in some general sense. You get in touch with how tense the shoulder can be or how loose the shoulder can be, how tense the kneecaps might be, how tense the gut might be. And so even though this person was feeling sadness, they were getting in touch with something real. They were getting in touch with the fact that probably off the yoga mat, they were walking around with this tension all of their lives. To begin the process of loving self-purification means one thing first and foremost. We have to know that it's going on in the first place. We have to give ourselves the space, the non-100% space of frantic freneticism, frozenness, to allow ourselves just to know what's going on and simply to name it lovingly. It's the whole real point of spirituality, isn't it? Allowing ourselves to get in touch, overcoming our estrangement from our own hearts, and from our own lives, figuring out what is unnecessary and what is necessary gets us to intimacy, real intimacy with this life. 
And it's intimacy that so many of us, and I know so many of you because I've talked to so many of us, so many of us, I'll include myself in this, crave. We crave intimacy with this life, with each other, with our heart source. And yet at the same time, we're very scared of it. We can be very scared of it because we might ask that question, if I'm really knowable, if I'm really knowable, someone knows me, will I still be lovable? If someone really knows me, am I still worthy of love? Getting in touch with our lives. That's what it's all about. The great spiritual teacher Jack Cornfield tells a story about uh, running one of the, talk about a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. I mean, he's run probably a thousand, two thousand, five thousand retreats in his life. And he talks about um, one guy at the retreat who set up his little meditation station like he was building a new age fort. It was like he had the, the perfect cushion and the perfect mat and the perfect posture and the perfect, so oh, I got some of these right here, the perfect prayer beads. And day after day after day on this retreat, he was setting himself up. And eventually, Jack Hornfield learned this guy's story. And the story was that he was at the retreat. And not just this retreat, but the story came out that he had been to many retreats because he wanted to heal. His intention was that he wanted to heal because some years ago, he had been involved in a car crash that had killed his only daughter. And he was responsible for this car crash. And so he was living with all of those shame, affliction, awful kinds of counterproductive programs. And he said he wanted to heal. Now, on the last day of the retreat, Jack Cornfield went up to him and he said, do something for me, would you? Put your perfect cushion away. Put your perfect prayer beads away. Don't spend 15 minutes getting into position. Just sit and just breathe. And within five minutes of him sitting anxiously, edgy, I don't have all my protections around me, you can almost feel him saying, he started to sob. He had kept himself from his own pain. He had put life at a distance with all the stuff, all the trappings of so-called spirituality, but none of the real stuff of spirituality. This is a story of what's known as spiritual materialism. Like this guy up here, I don't know if you can read the bubble, but the bubble says, wow, I feel so spiritual right now on the top of this mountain. I wish someone would get a picture of me. Spiritual materialism is about falling in love with these beads, these authentic beads from an ashram in India. I'm proud of my yoga mat that is 100% post-consumer recyclable something or other that's biodegradable. <laughs> I'm proud of my meditation cushion that cost twice as much if I would have gotten the cheapy version because it was made in Vietnam at 10,000 villages where I bought it and it was bought from free, free trade and fair labor, all that. I love all that. But you know what? Ultimately, that stuff doesn't really matter. Thoreau put it this way. He said, beware of any venture that requires new clothing. <laughs> and it's not just, it's not just that, that, that Thoreau had a puritanical streak and a moralistic streak. He really did. But it's actually this. Thoreau was really big. And this is what I think he was saying about beware any venture that requires new clothing. He was really big on not putting impediments between ourselves and life. Not putting boundaries or buffers that make us stand at a distance from our lives, that stand in the way, 
that end up standing in the way between ourselves and the truth of who we really are. When we can let go of what's not needed, remember that it's not the outer trappings of spirituality that matter, it's the inner disposition of our hearts and our spirits that matters much, then we can get in touch with what is vital. Even if it's painful, at the very least, we're getting in touch with what's here. This is what we hear in today's song, and in that cornfield, uh, I don't know whether he was thinking about, hey, Jude, when he recommended that guy, just simply breathe. Let it out and let it in, Paul McCartney wrote. Then you begin, then you can begin, then we can begin to make it better. Only if we touch the essential stuff first, only if we get in touch with that basic aspiration. I mean, remember that guy who had all those trappings and that new age sport, Fort, excuse me, he said he wanted to heal. But he had chosen unnecessary things in order to heal. And it was only when the unnecessary stuff got taken away that he could get back in touch with his intention. He could really feel it to start to heal. In the movie that I preached on as kind of a prelude to this series, a movie called Simply Beginners, there's a young woman named Anna who has fallen in love with the main character. And the main character can do nothing, it seems, but complicate his life. And things start to get complicated in their new relationship when the honeymoon phase kind of wears off. And Anna says at one point, and it's absolutely beautiful, she says, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I want to be here. You see that movement? I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. But that aspiration, I want to be here. This is what the philosopher Nietzsche said in one of his most insightful statements. He said, a person who has a why to live can bear almost any how. This is why it's so necessary from time to time for us to run our own decluttering systems. I would say not just from time to time, but every single day to get in touch with what malware, what spyware, what viruses we might be carrying of the heart and of the mind. The cobwebs, the fear, the worry, the afflictive emotions. And not to kind of push them out. It's not quite as easy sometimes as simply running a virus scanner on a computer, but simply first to know that they are there. This is what our tradition, our Unitarian Universalist tradition, is at its best. We describe ourselves as a non-doctrinal spirituality. Now, defining yourselves and ourselves as a negative, I can't stand. It's one of my least favorite things about our movement. And yet we are a non-doctrinal spiritual tradition. But at our best, we are a non-doctrinal spiritual tradition for a reason. We are a non-doctrinal spiritual tradition because we are an intentional spiritual tradition. An intentional spiritual tradition locates the source of our strength within our ability and our willingness to grow. The religious life is not a matter, not a matter of the right incantations or the right prayers or the right beads or the right method. It is a matter of something simpler and yet more difficult for so many of us, which is locating our intention to grow, our aspiration to be present in our lives. Now, of course, method matters. I teach mindfulness. Method matters a great deal. But all the method in the world and all the skillful means and all the great practices in the world don't matter as much as our intention to grow our willingness to expand and nourish our souls. I mean, I love the reality TV shows that are all about the makeovers. I love them. I can't get enough of them. But I always wonder, 
yeah, it's good to look good on the outside, especially when you felt really bad about yourself for a long time. That's like a, that's a nice step. But I always wonder, like, six weeks, eight weeks, eight months later, have the people started to make the interior changes? Because I still know a, a lot of people who walk around looking really good and feeling really, really crappy about themselves. Ultimately, method, ultimately, method doesn't matter. Intention matters. I mean, I read a study recently about people who recover from forms of addictions, drug, alcohol, overeating, uh, sexual addictions. What matters most is not the program that they choose ultimately. Recovery or therapy or a whole variety of ways to work a program. Those are skillful means. But the most important thing that a person can choose if they want to recover from an addiction is simply this. Do they want to get better? I might ask some of you this day, do you want to get better? Everything follows from there. To be present, to be kind, to be loving, to be able in the same way that Rabbi Hillel, when he was asked many years ago, a contemporary of Jesus as he was, when Rabbi Hillel was asked, tell me the Torah, tell me about the sacred books, the meaning of the sacred books by someone who meant to mock him. While standing, he said, this inquisitor, on one leg. And he said, what is hateful to your neighbor, do not, what is hateful to you, excuse me, I screwed it up, but I can still stay balanced, you notice, a little bit. <laughs> what is hateful to yourself, do not do your neighbor, the rest is all commentary. Now go and study. Simple. <laughs> simple intention. See, when we have that simple intention to grow in our lives, to be able to break down what is the core of our aspiration, then that allows ourselves day by day by day to correct if we get off course. This is why being a beginner matters. It means that we have something to check in with each day to make sure that our intention is real. One of my core intentions is when people come to me with problems, I really try not to give them solving kinds of answers. Let me fix you. As a man, as a minister, I got to tell you, I got to restrain that temptation because very often it doesn't work. Now, that's a key in temptation. It's a key temptation, but it's also a, a key intention is to care in meaningful, presence-based ways. But not too long ago, I was talking to a friend. I was talking to a friend who was going through a really difficult time. I mean, they were not just 100% of their CPU usage, but if you remember those old cartoons where like the, the heart's beating so fast that it bursts out of the chest or that the thermometer, the mercury in the thermometer goes up so much it just explodes right off the top? This was my friend. Like 150, 200% of usage. They had just started a new job. They were completely feeling overwhelmed. They were completely feeling overwrought. And they were basically saying, I can't do this. Talk about frozen and frenetic simultaneously. And after they'd been talking, this all by, by the way, I got all this in about five minutes talking with them. It came up that this person hadn't slept in three days. And at that point, I said, you know what, are you near a pharmacy? Could you, could you go and get yourself some melatonin? Now, I don't know if you know what melatonin is. It's a natural sleep hormone. It's non-addictive. To people like me who have trouble sleeping, it is a godsend. And I just I stopped asking questions. I just said, please, do this for yourself. Do yourself a favor. Go and get yourself some melatonin. I talked to my friend three days later. And really nothing had changed in their lives yet. But they had gotten some sleep. 
and they were able to start to discover where they wanted to be. Now, in that moment, I could have spent hours talking to my friend, as I often do. But in that moment, that would not have been the most helpful thing. Go and get yourself some freaky melatonin. That was the most helpful way that I could be in touch. Checking in with our intention allows ourselves moment to moment to know the best ways to be helpful to ourselves and helpful to each other. To really know what's happening. To really know what is necessary to the task of living. It is maybe to touch a word that maybe we're a little bit more comfortable with than purity. Simplicity. Basic, good old simplicity. Like the old shaker tune. You know, it is a gift to be simple, it is a gift to be free, it is a gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, we'll be in the valley of love and delight. And I love even the, the second verse a little bit more, we don't hear it as much. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To bow and to bend, think about that flexibility that's required, day in, day out. To bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To turn, to turn, will be our delight, when by turning and turning, we come round right. Turning, by the way, is the old, old word, conversion. Conversion's not a once-and-done thing. Turning is not a once-and-done thing. Being a beginner is a always-going-on kind of thing. This is what it means to be in the valley of love and delight, not someplace else, but to actually make our own lives a valley of love and delight, to turn and to turn, and to turn. In the same way we would lovingly cultivate a garden. None of us ever perfects this. We just choose to stay in touch. There's the old Zen saying that says, before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. It's always the same stuff. The enlightening thing, though, is that we're in touch, to actually touch our lives, to experience real intimacy with our hearts. This is what it means to be a beginner. And so today, may you begin. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of beginnings so regular and so abundant that perhaps even the word beginner does not qualify. Perhaps simply we just call it life. May we be in touch with life. May we know, yes, its vast possibilities, but even more, may we not escape from this moment. May we not escape from the pain, the pleasure, the joy, the suffering, right here and right now. May this be our prayer, to allow ourselves the space and the grace to be people of intention, to be a beloved people in this way, and to allow ourselves the room that we need to grow. Amen.